Welcome to the Impact Learning Visionaries podcast, where we celebrate the unsung heroes of the learning and development industry. As always, we'll be bringing some laughter and a bit of fun along the way, but more importantly, you'll get some incredible insights, key lessons, and unique perspectives on everything related and possibly unrelated to training and development. Let's get this show on the road. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Impact Learning Podcast. Today, we are joined by Scott Hammerell. Uh, this one is going to be really, really interesting. Um, so Scott has this insatiable, he's an insatiable lifelong learner who loves overcoming difficult challenges. In fact, he's accumulated a list of professional accomplishments really seen in the same person. He started out in serving as a special operations scout sniper in the Marine Corps and was a curriculum designer and teacher um, with a, within a school known for its high performance and and many other things. And as a result of this, Scott considers himself to be a ruthless pragmatist who focuses on building practitioners, not theorists, when designing learning and leadership solutions. Scott's innovative programs and ideas have been implemented within businesses like Deloitte, Hilton Hotels Worldwide, AWS, SAP, the US Congress, and Fannie Mae, just to name a few. And he's currently the CEO of Dewpoint Strategies, where he focuses on building immersive, engaging, action-based development programs, resulting in measurably higher individual, team, and organizational results. Whew. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. Thank you. Excited to be here. So let's. Uh, we had a great conversation um, just before this, and and I almost want to. To kind of rewind back there a little bit, um, I think one of the things that you know I, th- I think a lot of people are you know um, drawn to or fascinated by is is the armed services, and there's you know there's there's a lot of um, I suppose like not a lot of clarity there around like what it's like to be in that space, what it's like to learn in that space, and and more importantly the kind of of impact um that has had on your unique journey um starting out as as a scout sniper and and some of the lessons that have almost um defined you through that process that you take with you into your into your current kind of business training life maybe you can share some of that that with us as a start i'm fascinated sure the first thing I would like to point out is that in the military, when it's a matter of life or death, you spend 80% of your time training and only 20% of your time operating. However, in the corporate world, only in the snow cones and unicorns opportunities or companies do you even see an inverse of that, where people are given that 20% of their time to train so that they can operate 80% of the time. So the role that practice, knowledge, practice, feedback, reflection in that constant loop, and really that dedication to the process in order to get those outcomes is one of the key things that I still hold dear and in many cases struggle with. Right, having come from that background where there was such an investment and an understanding of what is required in order 
to reach a certain level of competency in order to be proficient at something. The other is standards, right? Having, you know, you don't get your hopes and dreams in life. You get your musts, right? People, if you don't have certain standards, it's very difficult to maintain excellence or to even teach other people, right? To elevate them up. So that was another key aspect that I think I continually draw from when I'm designing programs or working within the L&D space in the corporate world. It's really being focused on what are those actual competencies that we're just not going to negotiate on. And that, the same thing is true within education, right? Being a high school teacher for 10 years, standards... And, and not to be confused with standardized tests, right? That's a whole different <clears throat> conversation. But having that discipline and that rigor and putting that at the frontispiece and making that painfully obvious to the learner and makes it easier then to create those systems and structures that get people to that elevated state of performance. Wow. So what you're doing at the moment in order to get there, as I understand, is you're, you're building these kind of, as I said, these immersive action-based development programs. Um, what, does that, I mean, what does that look like? Um, if, if someone was to go on, on one of your learning experiences, um, what would we be expecting? What makes a difference? Great question. And again, pulling from education and military experience, which is you learn by doing. I, I never learned how to do anything in the military by looking at the PowerPoint deck or studying it. It's by actually doing. And you know, acts of consistency are more powerful than acts of intensity. And so based on that principle, what we do is we take a cohort of people because we don't just learn best in groups, although that's how many people are educated, like you're in a class, but we learn best as groups. We learn best with and through other people because they're giving us constant feedback and participating in that those repetitions. Essentially what we do is we identify, like what are three key learning targets, performance outcomes? What do you want to be true at the end of, say, these three months? And then we reverse architect from there, building an intellectual obstacle course for that team, where every day there is an individual challenge. Layered on top of that, there's a small group project that they're working on over time, as well as a collective whole group project in capstone and the idea is we're giving people an opportunity to intersect with other ways of thinking and solutions that fit best for them within their context within the team where a lot of programs fall short say in leadership development 
you, you take a person, you pull them out of their context, you put them over there, right? you send them to MIT or to Harvard or wherever to do a leadership development program. They learn a lot. They love it. But then they come back to their team. You put them back in their context. And the power of the organization to influence the individual is always greater than the power of the individual to influence the organization. So there's an incompatibility to apply what they've learned. So by taking the whole team through a development cycle, they're constantly figuring out how to apply in a way that suits them what they've learned. Like a best example of this, you know, to put it in one line, techniques don't scale. Principles do or concepts do. So for example, Best Buy one time had a manager who turned their worst performing store into their highest performing store. One of the things he did is he gave all of his people a whistle. And when anybody on the floor would see somebody doing something great, they'd blow their whistle. And people loved it. So what Best Buy did, what many large corporations would do is say, we got to scale this. And so at their corporate leadership development, they gave all their managers whistles and told everybody to blow it when they saw something good. But here's the thing. It doesn't work for everybody. It worked for that guy in that store with his team. So the technique of blowing a whistle every time you see somebody doing something, that's a stunt. That's a technique. The concept, however of catching people doing something right instead of pointing out when they're doing something wrong, that scales. So what we do is we give people an opportunity to try on different techniques that do work for them within their team for the kinds of business problems that they're solving within a healthy, constructive environment of instant and abundant feedback so that they know it's working. Sure, that sounds amazing. Want to be on one of your training courses. Um, that's, I mean, it's such such a great example, the, the whistle. I mean, it's like we all understand the concept of um, reward and recognition, um, but it's, it's, it's an interesting example of a, as you say, a stunt that was applied versus understanding the, the kind of theory or the principle of what you're trying to achieve. So there's there's uh, an interesting question I wanted to ask because as you as you were talking, um, you know, you you obviously talked a lot about this what what we call this experiential learning, learning by doing. But what I was also quite fascinated by is is a lot of people don't marry the learning by doing with the context of where you're learning as well. So mm -hmm. um, that for me was kind of a fascinating combination. And really kind of curious as to as to how how that kind of plays out. Um, you know, and, and you've kind of also talk about, you know, your courses being kind of quite measurable and metric driven. And just in terms of, of that, how powerful is that learning within the same context of where you're going to be operating? Um in, in your opinion, when it comes to, to the effectiveness of people who go through training? 
not just in my opinion, but proven through abundant research, wildly more effective, right? So not only is there like the zone of proximal development cognitively that you can't learn something too far beyond what you already know, there's a lot of evidence in physically where you are learning. This is why they tell you, so you study for a test, where you're going to take it, how you're going to take it. Uh, oh, going back to the military, to use another example, you know, famously, the SEAL Team 6 mission, when they went to get Osama bin Laden, they built an entire town complete with actors and extras that spoke Arabic and everything looked exactly the way that the the actual site looked and appeared because that is how you maximize performance. And so, you know, without diving into too many rabbit holes, getting into like the biochemistry of learning, it makes... Essentially, you're quite literally and cognitively, you're just reducing the distance and the friction between taking this new concept and then being able to deploy it. So there's digestion and then there's deployment. And we talk about measurement. A lot of times people stop at digestion, which is just, did you receive this information? And can you repeat back to me, you know, get a certain score on a quiz, which is all well and good. But if you can't deploy it within your context, there's very little value, right? Essentially, you have learning scrap at that point. You have all this knowledge, but no ability to actually apply it. So, so before I go down the next rabbit hole, I, I just want to I want to close with like just an observation here is is the one of the big reasons I believe that that learning fails um, is is that you know as you said people are kind of plucked out of their environment and it doesn't even need to be a Harvard or MIT it can be to like a negotiation skills course or a sales skills course and they they're learning with like minded people. But then they come back into the organization and everybody's where this person left off when they left the organization. He comes back in or she comes back in at this level and then inevitably kind of hits this friction because, you know, you, you can't really function because you've kind of left people behind. And in, what I've often seen happening, is especially when you've got a new framework, you know, like in, is someone learning project management and they come in and they've got a team that report to them and they've got all these new ideas and the team's not ready for them and this person comes in with a new framework and says no we've got to do step one then step two then step three and everybody gets frustrated and there's friction because they just want to get on with it um what i think this this idea that you've talked about is, is as much as a learning um solution it's also a change management solution for an entire team of people because you're also taking people on that journey of change so that they're all arriving at the same spot, at the same level of understanding and awareness, and you don't end up with that disparity between the people who've gone away, come back with this additional knowledge, and the people you've left behind who are still down there. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, uh, I think it's a very, very clever way of, of training people 
Um, mm. The the interesting thing, and and maybe the kind of contrarian point here, which which also I'm quite fascinated by, is the there's this kind of concept of you know you learn as a as a team, but everybody learns at different points, and some mm. people some people will you know ideally wants to to like achieve mastery is the want of a better term is is in in organizations today i think there's a lot of skills in the organizations and the in this new world in this change like this this future of work um what's what's starting to rise is this kind of need for adaptability um, in organizations for people to be adaptable innovative and creative and a lot of these kind of soft skills are being positioned as really really kind of significant in the the ability for companies to stay ahead of their competition now in in this situation where you've got a team of people who are going through this process the you kind of almost ending up with a bit of a lowest common denominator because it's it's the combination of the team that are learning at the same pace how do you take advantage then of the the individuals who've really got the potential to master a certain body of knowledge because i've always believed and maybe this is this is either correct or incorrect that only when you really achieve a level of mastery in a subject can you start to be creative and almost break the rules so it's it's interesting for me is how you kind of marry up the worlds of taking a team but also helping those those individuals kind of achieve mastery as well I didn't realize we had six hours. <laughs> yeah, take your time. <laughs> he, that is a phenomenal question. Let me back up and comment on where you began. The problem isn't that learning fails. It's that it succeeds. It succeeds in achieving what I would call reasonable outcomes and expectations. And the problem is that a lot of learning should be unreasonable. If it were reasonable, everybody would be doing it right now. And maybe that's not the right term, certainly not the right one if you're trying to sell this to leadership. Learning succeeds in achieving the standards, going back to standards, that it sets out to. I can send somebody out to that leadership development program, measure their progress, I'm, I win, right? If I'm the procurement L&D person, that's a win for me. The, in the point that you brought up about you know, people learning at different levels, people having that ability once they've achieved mastery to teach others is exactly the reason why we do it the way that we do it. So that in real time, as we're provoking the individuals and the teams to have these conversations organically, people are experiencing that mastery and seeing that's who I go to and also building those muscles. What I find puzzling to me is that more organizations don't deeply invest in helping teams build those muscles and those systems and structures for that 
transfer of knowledge. People, you know, there are people that work on the opposite side of a pane of glass and don't know what the other person is good at, how they help. So we're helping groups of people perform well together. Again, going back to my time in the military, I don't go off and do my own training. And, you know, our corpsman goes off and does his own training in isolation. Sports teams don't do individual practice. You practice and you operate together. Because, you know, as the first law of combat, once, you know, incoming rounds have the right of way. And once the first shot is fired, all your plan goes out the window. But the idea is, is to achieve a level of synchronicity and an awareness of other people's strengths and their patterns and their rhythms so that we can operate. And to your point, you have to have more learning agility, operational agility. And, you know, Josh Burson's new term for this is like organizational ingenuity, right? That we kind of have this seamless structure. Like an example would be if, you know, I'm in combat with my former team, if one of my teammates ran out of ammo and picked up an AK-47, I would know it was him based on his rate of fire and how. So it's that level of awareness. And you don't get that when you are growing, developing, and learning in isolation from one another. And that's the type of awareness and attunement, right? Because this is not a matter of skill. This is a matter of awareness and collaboration in, in how we operate. And, you know, knowing who to go to for help, how to go to people for help. Those are the superpowers. You know, we always say if knowledge is power, then learning is a superpower. I don't know why we outsource that so much or why we don't spend more time allowing our people to really grow in that capacity because that, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, learning compounds over time. So if you can give your team like that base level and that opportunity to build that, it just compounds performatively over time. Yeah. No, I mean, just putting on a little bit of a devil's advocate hat here and thinking, you know, in the, the kind of comparative you made of like, you know, 80% in the military is spent on training or 20% that's essentially acting on that training. I'm guessing many organizations or corporations would say, we just don't have that luxury. We don't have the capacity to have people spending 80% of their time learning. In fact, we're lucky if we have 20% of their available capacity to learn. And yet, when you describe the impact and effectiveness of creating this learning ecosystem, it sounds almost like such a no-brainer. And I can, mm. I can almost emphasize why people get frustrated because they get stuck in this kind of, of like middle ground between these two opposing forces. And, and it's, it's a tale as old as time. It's, 
how how do you work with organizational leaders to kind of break them out of that relatively kind of old school way of thinking? You know, I mean, you're right. So it's sporting teams, you know, work together and and spend a significant amount of time training in preparation for excellence. Um, same happens in armed forces, but yet in business, we we tend to believe that people just show up every day to do their jobs. And every now and then we'll we'll pull someone out because they've been given a kind of a, a kudo or a nutty badge or something and saying, okay, you can go and do some extra training. How do we change that mindset? If you figure it out, please let me hear. <laughs> well, I'm glad you asked. I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, it, it is such a the, the short answer. The short answer is results. Show them the results. So we've been fortunate enough to work with enough teams and enough companies where there was enough faith and buy-in at the beginning to try the process out. And the outcomes are ultimately what flips the mindset. And it's, it, is, it is a seismic shift in thinking. That, that said... There are some organizations that already do this and have been doing it for a long time. Toyota is a great example. Toyota achieves their level of performance and excellence because learning is in everything that you do. So the, you know, to back up into the theory, the transition here is moving from the Tayloristic model, right? So Taylor, who wrote the principles of scientific management, that was all about execution, right? Each shovel full of coal needs to weigh this many pounds. And the goal of the manager was to execute perfectly every time. And there was ways of measuring every step of that process. Whereas now, and that's, that's actually great if you're shoveling coal. But if you're solving interesting problems and you're trying to innovate, the transition that needs to be made is continuously improving and learning while you execute. And that's a whole different animal. And if you study a lot of organizations that were verge of collapse, they were sinking, and somebody brings in a new leader, and then 12 months later, everything's different, you will find that that was the shift that took place. It was having the discipline and the insight to make some short-term sacrifices in order to get the long-term gain, to build that base of those systems and structures, allowing the learning to compound over time that ultimately is what brings about sustainable performance. We oftentimes get seduced by chasing what's achievable today rather than what's sustainable moving forward in the future. There's a, there's a word that you used, which um, I want to explore a little bit because it's quite an intriguing word. Um, you use the word discipline and in in the sense of 
making these seismic shifts within organizations, um, it kind of struck me that maybe what's lacking in a lot of organizations is discipline. Is mm -hmm. I mean, obviously there's, you know, we, we talk about organizational change, but, you know, and we talk about the kind of the, the kind of pit of despair and coming out the other side, but no one really mentions the word discipline very often when it comes to training organizational change. And I, I wonder if that's something that's lacking in our vocabulary when it comes to business. What are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. I'm probably going to, uh, I'll preface all of this by saying I'm going to plagiarize from Jocko Willink and Simon Sinek and a whole bunch of other people here. But ultimately, you don't rise to the levels of your hopes and dreams. You sink to the level of your training. And those disciplines, you, you are the either the architect of your habits and disciplines or you're the victim of them. And those disciplines, you know, Jocko Willink is famous for saying like discipline equals freedom. That's ultimately what enables autonomy and innovation. Having that base level allows you then to progress up. You get into things like values and, you know, the ability to collaborate meaningfully and find purpose. And a lot of people tend to do that out of sequence. You develop your disciplines first. And that's what gives you the ability to move faster and wider. Because when things get really difficult and challenging, and this is another issue with learning, you can learn something cognitively. The example, and my apologies for overusing the military examples, mm -hmm. this would be a great example of discipline. I can teach my Marines that when ambushed on patrol, the appropriate response is to attack into the direction of fire. Meaning I need you to go toward the bad guy with the gun that's shooting at you. Now that's an easy concept. If I give them a quiz on that right after, they're all going to get 100%. Their retention on it is going to be great. Even six months later, they'll all pass the test. They'll say, yep, that's the way I go. That's not what I care about. What I care about is when we're actually on patrol, and we're actually getting shot at, which way are you going to go? That response requires a discipline. It requires there to have been a consistent, repeatable group training in back to the environment, in an environment that looks, feels, sounds, and in some cases smells exactly like the one you're going to face in order for because your lizard brain is saying, I want to go that way, right? And no, matter, no amount of cognitive understanding is going to be useful in this case. Only the discipline of having done this drill over and over and over again is what's going to power you towards that, right? And try not to get too deep into the weeds here, but I'll, I'll summarize it by saying this. You cannot think your way into a new way of acting. You have to act your way into a new way of thinking. That's the power of discipline and the consistency. And, you know, discipline weighs ounces. Regret is measured in tons. So you can put that effort in and achieve those outcomes, or you're going to suffer the consequences of 
it's, it's a lot less predictable when you don't have those disciplines. Now, of course, using the word discipline in many senses, people might think, well, that's a very easy word to use because the, the, the challenge, of course, is, is there's a little bit of an element of fear. And, it, and you use such a, a brilliant example because you talked about our lizard brain. And, and when someone shoots at you and you don't have that discipline, you're going to do what's instinctual. You're going to probably run in the opposite mm-hmm. direction. But in, if, if we now take it into kind of a less extreme example and we take that into an organization, um, then it, it, there becomes you know, a lot more subtleties to it um, because then it's about a whole bunch of different myriad factors that come into play. It's about you know, what is holding me back from mm. doing this, what is holding me back from behaving this way. And, and often that comes from a place of fear, um, fear about what other people are going to think about you, fear about whether or not you do going to make a mistake, fear about whether you're going to get embarrassed. And that that really boils down to what does the environment around the learning look like that encourages this this willingness to take risks, this willingness to start building those micro habits which ultimately become a discipline. Um, and... Yeah, I think it's so entrenched in in kind of military structures. Um, well, in part, you know, because you also get very, very um, severely taken to task if you make mistakes. I mean, just reading Yako's book will tell you what the implications of making mistakes are. <laughs> but in in organisations which you come into, which which you know, there's a kind of a cultural like like lack of willingness to change, um, lack of discipline. How do you notice it, and how do you how do you engage with that, and and help the teams overcome it? Awesome question. Confidence comes from experience. Right? What you had essentially mentioned was a fear, mm-hmm. right? a fear of I'm going to be perceived in a way that I'm not good enough, that I might not be what people thought I am. And the reality is, you know, we design our programs and I say, even at, you know, our onboarding, if you're the kind of person that likes to be the smartest person in the room all the time, you're not going to like this because it's just not possible every day to have, you know, the, the most brilliant response. We give everybody an opportunity to shine. That said, and now I think the best way to answer your question is through a story. In one of our programs, we had somebody who had reached out to me and he's like, look, I don't want to be responding to these every day. English is not my first language. And I don't think it's fair for you to ask me to be putting out, you know, like grammatically incorrect. And, you know, I don't want the team essentially to think I'm not good. And so I worked with him and you know, and also like culturally, you know, he was from East India. And if you know anything about Indian culture, like it's really important to be the smartest in in your class, right? There are significant consequences if you do not meet certain standards. And he was really struggling with that. Got him and I worked with him. We got his first posting up there and he started getting all this feedback from his peers about 
how great his idea was and how awesome. And you could see, I remember him calling me and I even get a little choked up thinking about this, just in tears, like of joy. He had been carrying this weight with him, this fear of being judged by his colleagues for his lack of language arts skills. He's a software engineer, right? And nobody cared. They respected him for who he was, what he was good at, and they loved his ideas and everything he shared. Absent that experience, I have to imagine he would have gone another however many years carrying that fear. Now, think about how expensive. Now, if I'm the organization leader, think about how expensive it is to have people carrying that, you know, what around that weighs way more heavily on their ability to perform than anything else. So what we do is we give people actual opportunities, you know, to face that fear. We're like biochemically actually programmed to face, go toward those challenges, not around them. And one of my favorite things like be the buffalo, not the cow, right? In the difference between buffaloes and cows, when they see a storm coming in. What the buffalo do is they all get together in a herd and they stampede toward the storm. They go right towards the thick of it because they know they're going to go, yeah, go right through it, but then they're done with it and they get rained on for just a little bit of time. The cows just sit right where they are and they get the worst of it and they just sit there and get the worst of it. So the goal is you know, to go toward that challenge. And we create that environment that makes it safer for people to do that, right? Because this guy was able to put his post out. He's not going to get fired for it. It's not really his job, but he needed that actual experience. All of his managers could have sat him down during one-on-one -on -one saying, it's going to be okay. People, even his peers could have said, it's going to be okay. And none of it would have changed, again, back to the ambush example. None of it's going to make the person go toward the direction of fire. Only having the direct experience and taking the risk and then seeing the outcome, that's what changes the mindset and the behavior. And when that becomes the norm, this is actually where psychological safety comes from. It's knowing through direct experience that my peers are here to support me. And it's okay to be where I'm at because our collective goal is to just succeed together. And it's not about trying to outdo or be hyper-competitive. And you can still be competitive and want to be good, but not at the expense of not being willing to take risks. It's great insights. Um, so just coming kind of starting to close off a little bit here. Um, have three questions remaining. So, so the first is just, you know, what do you see as the biggest challenges that the industry, or, or the biggest challenge that the that that the learning and development industry faces at the moment? The one that you're kind of hitting up most often, or just observing and and are most frustrated by. Where to begin? There, I would say, a lot of, in aggregate. 
lot of L&D has kind of lost its way. Don't get me wrong. I understand the need for us to speak the language of the business. And to the degree of which it makes sense, seek things that are scalable. But at the same time, let's not forget what we're supposed to be the advocates of and the experts in. Because you know what else scales really well? Mediocrity. And if we've been too far to fit within that neat little box, we're remiss in, in negligent in our duty, right? And, you know, L&D is an interesting field because not many people like grow up saying, I'm going to be a corporate L&D person. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people kind of find, <laughs> they find their way into it. So there's not really a strong level of rigor, right? Not everybody has an education background. It understands pedagogy and the biochemistry of learning. What happens when there's cortisol in the bloodstream and why the hippocampus needs to be activated and all of that. You know, it's like if you were to go in for heart surgery and you say, hey, doctor, and you're like, well, I'm not really a doctor. Right? I, I'm just the ho hospital administrator. You'd be like, oh, right? Look, but don't worry. I've had three triple bypasses. Like, oh, so I'm having a triple bypass? Well, not really. What scales well and what's economical for us is just a single. So that's what we're going to do today. <laughs> You're like, what? You, you expect the expert when you go there. And so I think what we could do better is, uh, to go back to what we were just talking about, have more discipline in presenting what we know to be necessary for learning to actually take place. If I had to really answer it, I would say the underemphasized component right now is on so what we call like the learner transfer factors and looking at the learner attributes and requirements. We spend a lot of time focusing on the program. Like, is the content right? Is the program good? And then we send a group of people through it and we get the feedback, usually from the people that disliked it the most. And then we use that as an input to create the next version. Right? Again, if we did that in the military, if I asked everybody how they liked sniper school, you know, before long, we'd be sitting around making s'mores. Right? So it's having the confidence to enforce rigor. You know, another way of putting this is if we had two groups of people, this group, they had the best resources, the best facilitators and trainers, awesome curriculum, but they weren't really sure why they were there or not that curious to learn versus this group who they had like no resources. Facilitators are terrible, right? Instructors are awful. But they are insatiably curious and will stop at nothing to learn. Who are you going to bet on? Right? We all know that this group is going to win. They're going to outperform. They don't need the resources. They don't need the facilitators. All the money, all the investment we put over here. So it's really helping learners know why they're learning, how they're going to apply it making sure that they feel safe and spending the time in learning. 
those are going to drive outcomes more than anything else. And when we just ignore them mm. as a critical component in whether programs succeed or fail, we're really missing a huge opportunity. So it's really developing the disciplines for us to talk about that, right? When we bring things to the business, it's like, look, I have a great program. You're sending people to me that are checking email yeah. all day because they're they're underwater. Or they were voluntold to come to this and they didn't, their brain literally was not in a state where they could learn. That's where you can make the biggest bang for your buck right there. Mm-hmm. So something that stands out to me there is is we we often forget about the five letter acronym that I love to use. What's in it for me? And mm-hmm. and helping the learner understand the answer to that question. Um, because we often we often race to the finish line and put the solution together, but forget to tell the story. And and every person has their own story. And it's it's about being able to link that that person's story, which is often their career up with this kind of, why should I do this? What's in it for me? What's what's the big outcome? Um, because I, I think there are some people who are naturally intrinsically motivated to learn and they're excited and they, they're kind of of, you know, um, self, uh, self, um, what's the right word I'm looking for? Um, like they, they kind of got a natural kind of, of, um, behavior that drives them, but there are some people who who just don't have that self kind of of you know that self-driven internal behavior and and i think that we can actually achieve it with both types of individuals if we can just craft those really really immersive stories that that help people understand you know why am i doing this what's in it for me what's you know so i I think that's quite powerful Um, obviously we would love to have and that's true for both individuals, just to interject quickly. That's true for both individuals and organizations. Right? I call that overcoming the valley of expectations, knowing that there is like a big gap between your development of disciplines, your daily actions, those acts of consistency before they reveal visible and then sometimes measurable outcomes. Right? The analogy I use is like bamboo. So you know how bamboo grows, right? It, for six months or even longer, the root system grows underground. You see nothing, right? You can go back and you water it and you water it and nothing for months and months and months. And then one day, and then it's boom, 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 boom. So it's that valley of expectations. It's that thinking that, all right, I'm going to do this and I'm going to get that. I'm going to do this, I'm going to get that. Learning doesn't work that way. Performance doesn't work that way. And oftentimes there's an inverse relationship between the investment in terms of time and resources that you have to make in order to achieve a certain level of excellence. Yeah. And and again, I suppose that's that's also where the discipline comes in. It's where, you know, the the, the world of, of behavioral psychology comes in because it's about, you know, we all have this intrinsic desire to improve our careers, but how are we going to create those micro behaviors and those nudges that are going to kind of get us to that finish line? Mm-hmm. Okay, so second last question is, 
just we, we always like to kind of share a little nugget of wisdom um you know kind of of with with the people watching and you've got such a fascinating background you've yeah yeah like i said i mean it, it's um your accomplishments are kind of really seen in the same person so you've got all this knowledge about psychology um you've obviously very well read because you're talking about you know, psychological safety you're a yucca woman all these different kind of um people you've spoken on leadership and learning and development and you also said something i think very profound which is you know when we're kids um no one says one day i want to be an organizational learning and development person so how if, if you were speaking to a group of graduates how would you get them excited how, how would you kind of reinvigorate someone who's who's maybe feeling a little bit disillusioned that they've they've fought all of these battles with the the kind of executive kind of board and they they feel like they've basically been beaten six ways from sunday how would you kind of bring that energy bring that excitement back into this into the space probably heard all of this before but as they say like following your passion is the worst career advice you can give anybody it is fine you know anybody in this world can do what they love that's easy right if that were true all my high school students would have grown up to be professional athletes rock stars and video game testers that doesn't take effort or discipline the real challenge in adult life is finding the love in what you do. And you get there by doing the work first. It doesn't start with love and passion. You get that, at least in my experience, as a consequence of having gone through the journey or being on the journey, I should say, because there's really no destination and having developed knowledge, skills, capabilities, competencies, and attributes along the way that make you good, right? To use Seth Godin's term, a linchpin, that give, make you uniquely qualified to design creative solutions or do whatever it is you do in a way that nobody else can do that. And it's falling in love with the process, the problem, and ultimately emotional commitment is the ultimate trigger for discretionary effort. And so if you want to make a difference and find a life doing whatever, doesn't matter what you do in this life, just be good at it. Be, be curious enough to always tweak it and figure out how to do more, right? There's ways to go through life, right? You can, one of the challenges we give to our, our groups is, you know, as kind of a mental model. If you were to go through each day and you just imagined that every single situation that you encountered was deliberately designed and engineered and put in your path to teach you something, your only goal is to figure out what that lesson is. Instead, what, what a lot of people do, especially now with social media and whatnot, they judge 
everything that's happening in front of them. They evaluate. They complain about, like, say, for example, you're at the line, you just want to pay for gas. And there's that guy again who wants to buy 600 scratch-off tickets. So you could complain, like, oh, this idiot, and judge him. Or that could be an opportunity to say, this is a great opportunity to practice patience, to be grateful that I don't find myself in a position where I feel like I need to buy $600 in scratch-off tickets. Because the net-net is you, you can't control your external circumstances, right? Life is not an outcome of our circumstances. It's how we react to them. And so you're going to end up way better off, right, constantly evaluating and figuring out how can I grow from this? How can I evolve? And in a long enough timeline, you'll figure it out. Look, I mean, take it from me, somebody who went from like, Scout sniper, the Marine Corps, the high school teacher, the Deloitte consultant. Like I've taken some wild turns, loved every journey I was on because they were all amazing opportunities to learn from awesome people and to learn from some not awesome people along the way. But I could have spent my time during those darker chapters complaining about it instead you know, more often than not, I choose to learn. And I still mess it up. I'm by no means perfect. But that would be my advice to anybody that's starting is to really be open and to take in those lessons. They're so valuable. And it's open source. It's great answer. Final question is we always ask our guests to share a book, podcast, an experience, something that's happened to them recently, which has had a profound impact, um, change your way you think about something. So the book, I think I'm just reading it, where to go? With the Sway. So I'm a big fan of behavioral economics and Dan Ariely and Kahneman. But I think what Sway does really well is the author's great storyteller. And, you know, this is part of what we were talking about, too. Like, how do you get leaders to understand this? You know, the subtitle is The Irresistible Pull of Irrational Behavior. And it does a really great job of visualizing kind of the power and the extent, right, from the space shuttle Challenger explosion where it's like, we knew... Right, this was gonna happen, but it happened anyway. That would probably be the book I would recommend. Podcasts so difficult. We were just talking about psychological safety. Simon Sinek just did another interview with Amy Edmondson in her update in the power of failure and why it's so important for organizations to embrace that and kind of mature our thinking on that concept and goes back to some things that we were talking about today that in order for organizations to allow people that to do it safely you do have to have those systems and structures because i've seen many of organizations where everything that's written on the wall makes sense and sounds great but then you go and you know, that's what's interesting about our position in working with some clients because we know what the leadership is saying, but it is amazing how candid people are with us 
you know, coming in as outsiders as to what's really happening. So that would be probably a really good podcast that I would recommend. Perfect. Well, Scott, it's um, it's been educational. Uh, I think, um, I, I mean, I, I really, I hope there are more people like you um, out there changing the learning and development landscape. Um, I think a lot of a lot of the things you say are really profound, really impactful. And you're right. I think we, we're seeing this transition in learning and development at the moment and this this need for an, a new type of learning and development specialist, someone who who understands all the nuances of human behavior, um, all the the nuances of the environments that they're in, corporations that they're in. And it's a, it's a daunting task, but also a very challenging and exciting one if you think about the magnitude of the challenges ahead. So I really appreciate you coming on, sharing your knowledge. It was uh, absolutely wonderful to speak to you. Thank you for having me. Let's do it again. Absolutely. Hey, thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Impact Learning Visionaries. If you found it interesting or helpful, please subscribe by clicking on the button down below so you don't miss our next one. Also, be sure to check out our Reality Bytes blog for more information on how technology is aiding in learning development. Links are all in the description below. Go check it out. Thanks a lot. Bye.